This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Salar Abdo, author of the novel A Nearby Country Called Love. I began to get interested in uh, the totality of the experience of a human being, not just in combat or violence, but how it is that in our in our most difficult moments, you know, we yearn for that for that human touch uh, uh, and love. We'll be back with Salar Abdo after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is how did we get to 9,000 hours is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. 
Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash first draft writers. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash first draft writers. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My guest today is Salar Abdo, author of five novels, including Tehran at Twilight, The Poet Game, Out of Mesopotamia, and Opium. He is also the editor of Tehran Noir. Abdo was born in Iran and splits his time between Tehran and New York City. He teaches at the MFA program at the City College of New York. His new novel, A Nearby Country Called Love, tells the story of Isa, who recently left New York to return to Iran, where he grew up with a gay older brother who was not accepted by their hyper-masculine father. When Isa comes home, he becomes haunted by a woman who lit herself on fire, which forces him to confront his own family's history. Isa's brother and father have both died, and he is alone navigating his past and present. He befriends an old theater friend of his brother's named Mehran, who falls in love with Issa's other friend, Nasir, a firefighter who cannot accept his own homosexuality. Through the tumult of his friendships and the city around him, Issa is seeking a type of peace and acceptance of what his future holds and how to find connection with those that he loves. We began the discussion with me asking Salar Abdo this question. I'm curious because I, I know you were born in Iran and you mentioned that, or it says on your cover, I think, or somewhere that you go back and forth between the two countries. And I'm curious what it's like as an artist to be in two very different cultures. And if that, if different things come out in your personality and your creativity, depending on which country you're in. Oh, it's, it makes a huge difference. Uh, And I'd say that I, uh, I chose this way of living. And, you know, at this point in my life, it's more than just between Tehran and New York. There's probably one more place, uh, if not more, uh, that I spend great amounts of time in. And I think of it as, uh, you know, uh, I think of life in general is to give yourself as many portals to walk through as you can. And when you walk through these portals, you're in these different worlds. And uh, while being very different, they act on each other so that you understand that other world uh, much better. And uh, then there is a something, uh, a synthesis also happens. You know, for someone like myself, who is very comfortable being in America just by the a default of having come here before that cutoff age where English became one of my main languages and I can negotiate my life in America. It allows me at the same time being from uh, the Middle East, it allows me to occupy different, literally different universes. Uh, and by doing that, I create fictions that utilize all of these portals where sometimes they converge and sometimes are completely uh, far apart, but I'm always aware of that. 
I'm curious, you use the word synthesis to talk about kind of these different cultures that sounds like involves other countries besides these two. Is that something you could describe with how that synthesis happens or what it feels like? Because it sounds really interesting. Well, you know, when I think about all of the books I've done, America uh, has played a role in it, you know, sometimes more sometimes less. In a nearby country called Love, what happens is that the main character, Issa, he returns uh, from America to his place of birth in Iran because, well, because they kind of throw him out, right, for for a very silly reason. And that happens all the time. But he could have easily fought it uh, and stayed but he decides uh, not to do that for the reasons that we see in the book. But, you know, in uh, in uh, previous books, for instance, uh, again, in Tehran at Twilight, for instance, two books before this, we have uh, a character who is, like me, very comfortable in both worlds. And uh, he, he negotiates, uh, and his best friend, they negotiate those worlds, they're uh, one of them. Uh, they they go in entirely different paths. One of them becomes like me, uh, a writer and a professor and an occasional journalist. The other one, even though he grew up in California, he decides to join underground elements in the Middle East, uh, uh, engage in some you know nefarious activity. But this is also the same guy who used to be able to go into any country western bar in what Bakersfield and play, you know, Hank Williams uh, or uh, Johnny Cash or whatever and become meld into that milieu. And, and that's kind of uh, that synthesis uh, to be able to write about that uh, in, a, in a larger way because of the world we're in is something I'm interested in because um, when in my previous novel, Out of Mesopotamia, I came to understand, uh, I spent about four or five years in in the battlefields of Iraq and Syria when the ISIS war was happening. And, and then last year in Ukraine again, uh, I realized that we live in a world where, you know, within a hundred mile radius or sometimes within 20 kilometers, which is really no distance, these vastly different worlds are taking place. Maybe here is war and here people are having a party. And um, I found myself negotiating, going from one place to another, because maybe I had to take a plane from Erbil or Baghdad to come back to New York to teach. And in order to do that, I had to go through this channel to get there. And 20 kilometers away, I remember for, during the siege of Mosul, I was 10 kilometers away from it. And it was another world. It was peace. Nothing was happening. And uh, I realized that we live, we live in a time of simulations. And uh, these simulations uh, can be very troubling. Uh, and at the same time, if you wrap your mind around it and try to understand it, it can help your fiction, for instance, or your nonfiction. I don't know if I answered correctly, but I'm always thinking about these multiplicity of worlds that 
we live in, but they somehow always converge. Yeah, it makes so much sense to what you're saying in terms of your title, A Nearby Country Called Love, because I think one of the stated themes um, and the incidences and mood that your main character Isa is going through. He says, I think it's like on the third page or it's in the very beginning. He says violence was the glue that held their inadequate lives together. Well, the narrator says that. And then later you say their inheritance was violence. So this idea of violence in this world is so on the surface, but a nearby country called love sort of indicates that like right next door is this whole other mentality and paradigm for how you can live. Absolutely. I mean, our yearning for intimacy and being understood and to be loved and to be able to give love is, uh, is, is, is endless. It's an endless well. And um, for Isa and people like him, I wanted to, I wanted to write about, as I said, like my previous novels were, were very, um, it, it, they treated the world of men. Uh, you know, it was a war novel, the one before that. Uh, and I, I, I began to get interested in uh, the totality of the experience of a human being, not just in combat or violence, but how it is that in our, in our most difficult moments, you know, we yearn for that, uh, for that human touch uh, uh, and love. And oftentimes we fail at it or we think we got it, but we fail at it. And Isa comes from a background, somewhat like I do, uh, of, uh, of not necessarily violence, but a culture that, it's, uh, that is quite uh, masculine. And uh, he has to transcend himself. Uh, in order to not just yearn for love, but to accept it in all of its 360 degrees uh, opportunities. And while he's doing that, he's com- constantly aware because circumstance, his, his, his world, the world that he knows, constantly presses in on him to his neighborhood, his father's past uh, constantly presses in on him to be other than that, to be this, to be this guy who is, you know, does not, does not, you know, bat an eye if something happens. And he's capable of that, but he doesn't want to be just that. And uh, in this novel, um, as he comes to, you know, all of these characters, uh, He's constantly gauging himself in some fashion. I, I keep thinking that I wrote this novel about, uh, you know, how how one learns to be a man in, in our age uh, as the paradigms have shifted and as someone like Isa, his world expands and he begins to read books and he become something of an intellectual, but he still carries that baggage of his uh, past and, and his and his uh, family, how he learns to open himself to these portals that exist that I was talking about. So when the book opens, we meet 
Isa, and he has come back, as you mentioned, from America for kind of a silly reason. I think he was caught on the subway with some kind of drugs, but it was like prescription drugs. And he gets sent back and his brother and father have died, but he has a lot of memories of living with them. And his dad was ultra masculine and his brother Hashem was gay and spent a lot of life in the, in the theater and with other people who are like him, both, you know, that have alternative sexualities, but also people who are just creative or flamboyant in their own way. And he's really kind of digging into those memories because he loved his brother and he also had some shame for how that relationship went. That's kind of what is occupying his mind. And then in the present, he has this new friend Nasser who has a lot of pent up violence in him. He's a fireman. They met working at an appliance store and become friends. And in the very beginning, they want to maybe avenge this man whose wife, burned herself, which is a a big theme of the book too, is that these women all over Iran are burning themselves and they're obsessed with that. And as they get more entangled, a friend from his brother's past comes Mehran and Mehran is a bit younger and ends up having this sort of secret, but then eventually not secret affair with Nasser. And that's a big thing for Nasser because sexuality and manhood is very important to him. And then there's this whole other cultural aspect of being in Iran and being different and gay and potentially being trans. And so you're really looking at this subculture within the city and how these characters are navigating that. Absolutely. You you described it perfectly. Wow. (laughs) I'll I'll add to that. There's also um, Isa grew up with these two women that his father took in um, a woman named Solmaz and her her mother Aziz who kind of helped around the house and his father paid for Zolmaz's, Zolmaz's education and she became a doctor and she's also at a place in her life where masculinity is getting in the way or she left her husband and her husband is um, harassing her and kept her is keeping her son from her and so she's also a good friend of he says that has influence over how he sees the world. So there's a lot of pain for all these characters. And I think for me, probably being uh, someone who's not very schooled on what life is like on the ground in Tehran, it was so interesting to see this subculture because all the news that we're fed is like to to be different, to go against the, the um, government there. And I can't think of, you know, being gay is one a big way to go against that. What that must feel like on the ground there. You know, I, I didn't set out to write this novel novel necessarily to say Iran or Middle East or wherever is not like that, but it's like this. But um, you know, as my career has gone on and I've thought a lot about a place like Iran, uh, one of the things I realized that um, when a place like Iran is looked at uh, through the lens, distant lens. Everything is black and white, and uh, it comes from the lens of uh, usually protest or activism against a regime, which is fine and well. But what that does uh, in the long and and done by well-meaning people who support that in the West uh, organizations. 
But what that does is uh, um, it's an engagement in a kind of reductivism uh, and simplifying, even infantilizing a culture. Because, you know, when you're talking about a country as old as Iran or Egypt or wherever with 85 million people in it, it's not all, you know, the place is not a prison, right? There are people falling in love. They're falling out of love. They have jobs. They uh, they marry. They divorce. There are you know there are places where the LGBTQ community somewhat freely gathers, like that park in Tehran that I described. And uh, one of my uh, one of my aims that's just it's an, it's an aim that comes naturally. I don't sit down and say I'm going to do this is to write about that place from a place of multi-layeredness, right? Complexity, like this place. This place has all of these flaws. There are all these, there, there's this regime that can be entirely oppressive at times, but not all the time because the place is kind of chaotic and its chaos can, can actually make it interesting. And within that, a space of things being interesting, all kinds of other things happen so that P, you know, the LGBTQ community actually uh, is engaged. Uh, they have lives, you know, they're not, you know, they're not thrown to prison every other day and they fall in love. Uh, they have jealousies, all of that, all of that stuff happens. And uh, I, I wanted to show uh, an Iran, uh, in this book and my previous books, where um, the place is uh, like any other place, like like America, you know, uh, uh, like France, whatever, like all of these things happen. And that too, levels of oppression are part of it, but they're not the only thing. And so that uh, the, the novel that I write, I, I hope that it's just not, an, it's not a polemic against the regime or a situation, but it's actually about the lives of people and it's their characters and psychology that's paramount in my books rather than the, the overarching politics. The politics, uh, as you might notice in this book, for example, it's there, it, it lurks in the background and towards the end of it, it, it presses into the novel a little bit with some of the demonstrations but it's not the novel that's not the novel is the human relationships and and the lovingness and the jealousies and the angers between these people it brings me back to the beginning of our conversation when you were saying how you know you can be so close to violence but there's peace 10 kilometers away and i think about it like in an oppressive regime, you can't be everywhere all the time. You can't be in every single person's life. So the regime is sort of like if the whole country is like this stage 
and the regime is like a spotlight. Maybe the spotlight's going on certain people, but everywhere in the dark, like people are whatever. They're drinking alcohol. They're having affairs. They're going to raves. They're, you know, and so I felt like your book was like, sometimes the spotlight was a little bit there, but it was more like this is what goes on on the edges because people essentially like our humanity, our need for love, our need to be exactly who we are, whatever our sexual preferences are, our need to, you know, be determine our own life and become a female doctor if that's what we need to do is going to be there. Absolutely. I think one of the things that was most interesting to me, it's just a fact in the book, was that the government actually in in some way supports and pays for sex changes because that is maybe easier because then like two men, if one person wants to become a woman, they could actually marry. And maybe that's exaggerated my understanding of that, but I thought that was a really interesting. Yes. I mean, that had, that's been going on in Iran for decades. Um, the government covers some of the costs, certainly not all of it. So it's a difficult process. And uh, some people, a lot of people make use of it, and it's a, it's a, it can be a positive thing that happens. Uh, but as a writer, you know, um, you know, I have a, a responsibility to sort of dig into the layers of things and see, like, how in what other ways these things manifest themselves, and so. You know, on the surface, this is a good thing. It's very um, forward thinking. And in many ways, it is exactly that. But ultimately, uh, the reason that is done is because here is a system that does not want two people of the same sex being with each other. So they are more comfortable and it promotes uh, one of them to become the other, right? And that causes all kinds of uh, problems in that society. And I try to portray it here because a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times, um, somebody will do that to just, just in order to uh, uh, continue a relationship. And then they'll be, they'll be full of regret. And it, it, it's a really, really bad situation i wanted to take a very um, convoluted situation such as this like when somebody from the outside look at looks at something like this they go oh interesting but within this interesting there are layers of complexity and my god the psychology involved in these situations is just it's mind-boggling right and uh, so in a nearby country called love um I wanted to portray, for instance, that a character like Mehran is really just a couple of steps away from doing something that's going to be a disaster for him, right? And actually for everybody, for Nasser too, because it wouldn't work out in the end. And Isa just sort of stands in the way of that somewhat passively because he understands that um, this is not the way to go. 
you don't take that kind of a step uh, for the wrong reason because you'll regret it for the rest of your life. And that happens in a place like Iran. And it's, it's a huge tragedy when it does. You know, I've talked to people in Iran who've, and hung out with them who've done, who've done it or who've, you know, gone partial way in order to you know, continue until it's done. And they're very happy and pleased with it, you know. But then there are others who did it for all the wrong reasons. And that, uh, for me, uh, that's happening in a place like Iran or anywhere else is emblematic of many other things that are problematic in a society. The reasons that people get married, for instance, right? The reasons people have children, for instance, the reasons people stay together, for instance, when when the best thing to do is probably not to be. And then this situation is just one of those, but it's a pretty extreme situation in this case. Yeah, and it just really perpetuates the violence because, you know, in your book, you have these two characters, Nasser and Mehran, and Nasser wants to be with Mehran, but but he can't, his own self-loathing and his own identity and, and his own homophobia that he has fallen in love with this man is is making him want to basically try to force Mehran to have this sex change surgery. And it also is turning something that can, for a lot of people who really want that, who want to feel that freedom and exhibit who they really are, turns it into something really dark. Exactly. I mean, you know, in these societies, um, you first of all, every society thinks are poignant and acute, but in, in some places, some situations are very, very acute. If you take a character like Nasser and you study him, you know, he's, he's this macho guy, fire, fire captain, you know, and he has a certain um, uh, personality in the, in the neighborhood. You know, the people look up to him and he thinks, you know, what happens if this guy comes and starts living with me? Whereas, uh, you know, I'm of a, I'm past, you know, I should have married a few years ago. My, my mother is upset with me because I should get married. You know, what are they going to think of me? So his thinking, which is completely flawed, is he's thinking, okay, so you become, quote unquote, a woman, and then we can uh, live together. But by Mehran doing that, of course, that's not what Nasser ultimately want, wants, correct? So it's really convoluted. These psychologies are really, really twisted. And, you know, in the novel, what I wanted to touch on really is that nobody, none of these characters are good or bad. There is no absolute good or absolute bad just as the state in some in some dimensions can actually work okay, these people at their worst, they can be violent like Nasser, but they can also be um, loving. And even Mehran says, you know, I, you know, nobody loved me like Nasser did. You know, if for a person who wants me to go to that length, that that shows love, and it also shows Mehran's need for being loved, right? Or 
for instance, Esau's father, another violent man, who was a karate instructor and former officer in the army, who had all kinds of issues with his older son, who was gay. But at the same time, this is the same man who pays for Solmaz uh, to go to school and become a doctor. Otherwise, she would have never even, she would have been illiterate because her mother came from the village and didn't even believe in uh, uh, an education for women. All of these people, even even Esau himself, um, you know, he, 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 he starts to educate himself. He reads his brother's books. Uh, he goes to America, gets a degree, thinks some more, comes back. He's, a, he's an open human being, but this human being reflects on his own past. And he thinks, you know, when he was in the army, he had to be in situations where he had to be a bit brutal towards demonstrators, right? And uh, even he has those dark spots. Every one of these people, in some fashion, or most of them, you know, they're not, and they have to live with that. And for me, you know, coming from the Middle East, especially, um, I think about that all the time, you know, the choices that we make and the situations that we are in that are really difficult situations. And uh, sometimes those choices that we make are not the best choices, but it's almost like the least bad choice we have. And some, you know, and all of these people in one way or another have had to make these choices in their lives. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You have a line um, in the book that I think is kind of when you're in Issa's point of view, kind of, but... Um, like the narrator is telling you more of his story, but it's a statement really. And I, I wanted to ask you about it. And the statement is everything in life is about loneliness or wanting protection. It's in a conversation that they're having and everything in life is about loneliness and wanting protection. And uh, I think in reference to this and not just that moment, but many, many uh, uh, contacts that are made, and people always question, you know, why, why do you do this, or why, why go that route? And somebody may say, you know, you don't do that because of just loneliness, or you don't do that because, you know, it's just for protection. And you know, we ask ourselves, why not? Why not? You know, I, I think about America, a place that, or New York City, a place can be very lonely, a very long, all of these millions of people, but most of them are very lonely, and uh, most of them are scared in a, in a country where the social welfare system, for instance, is not that strong, um, and they worry also about, you know, old age or loneliness so people make certain choices and uh, 
loneliness and wanting protection are very real things. And what happens in a, in in the arc of a story like this is, I think, the background narrative is about exactly that. Everybody's yearning for that love, that nearby country called love, which which is you know just a stone's throw away, perhaps. And you know, hope against hope, we're hoping that within that cocoon of love we can also shed some of that loneliness and have some protection. Can you talk a little bit about the women burning themselves, which is not just an incident that kind of begins the book that these characters are really interested in, but it's there's context of it throughout the novel? Yes, absolutely. I uh, when I started this novel, um, I mean, many things were on my mind, and I had been thinking about uh, the fact, the reality of women, and especially young women, and sometimes very young young girls, essentially, uh, burning themselves. And there would be uh, there would be periods uh, where they, that would, you know, like copycat and. And, you know, once we entered the age of um, social media, it, it got worse because uh, then, you know, it could be shared and some adolescent in a village who still has some uh, access to social media would say, oh, so uh, let me do this because I don't have anything. My life is this or that. But in general, what I was interested in, again, as a writer, but as a writer who had had to travel a long distance like I, I i had a long learning arc because of my background you know my my father was in professional sports that's really what i thought i was going to be doing from for, for the rest of my life for a long time i i didn't come into the world i know uh, automatically you know i was not I was not the studious type. I was always reading books, but my older brother, whom I sort of uh, write about in this book, was. So I came from a world of, again, I have no other word for it, very masculine world. Uh, Majismo is a real thing in this world. A couple of things that I was troubled by in the world, because I also now teach in academia in America, and I go back and forth, is I thought there was a, there was a divide between what happens in academia in the West and the discourse that exists here and the absolute reality on the ground of much of the world. And it's that reality of the mud. I'm a very boots on the ground writer. I'm not a, my research is to just throw myself into a place, geography, and see how people live and live with them. And I began to see, you know, you know, I, I didn't have to read in a book or books about the situations of women or read about it in newspapers. I started to see women's lives. And it's not that I hadn't seen it before, paid attention, but I, you know, as a, as a man, as a man, you learn, you have to teach yourself because everything in, in the world, in the culture that you know, has pushed you not 
pushed you towards lack of understanding. Everything you know is about your guy, you're from that place. Don't worry about these things. These things are, you know, I had to teach myself that. I had to learn to see and not just see, but also see again and again and again. So when I saw what was happening to women and the extreme case was when they felt like they had no recourse, they were burning themselves, especially in the provinces, um, I became very disturbed and, and I started researching it a little bit. But that also led me to thinking about what women's lives is in the world, you know, in a way that's that was very flesh and blood, not 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 book material, not seen on TV. I wanted to see what it feels for a 12-year-old Afghan girl in the Badakhshan province to be married off to a 74-year-old old man and why she kills herself or why why she risks the Hindu Kush mountains to come to Iran to go to Turkey and somewhere along the way. She's probably raped several times, but, you know, and these stories I started to collect. And the other thing that happened was that I started to translate a lot because I'm sorry, I'm going on a bit, but just a little passionate about this. I started to pad as a service to, to, to the writers of Persian in Afghanistan and Iran and other places I started to, and, you know, I would say four out of five things I translated were pieces by women. It just happened. I didn't choose them. They came to me, right? They have things to say. And I realized, my God, I'm translating these things and I'm learning about these lot. And it's not that I didn't know it. It was, but now I deeply know this is a part of my, you know, my being, you know, I can't turn my head away from this. And, uh, I would not have been able to write a nearby country called love if I hadn't been doing these translations. I really, it, it, you know, when you translate and you translate an essay by, by, by someone who talks about, you know, pretty, pretty acute stuff, poignant stuff, you, you know, you learn to see from their point of view. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to write about this, but while I write about this, the part of fact of women burning themselves, and they do that not just in Iran, they do that in many parts of the world. They do that in India, they do that many places. I wanted to go beyond that because I didn't want to just display the melodrama that might ensue from that. I wanted to, see, I wanted to show how these oppressions are done in less obvious ways, so that you can be a doctor like Solmaz in Iran, and still your husband does not allow you to you know, to see your child or practice, or you know, or if you want to get a divorce, you have to forego anything that's due to you financially. And you know, so I wanted to I wanted to go beyond just the extreme cases because you really it's the little things it's the little oppressions in life that ultimately kill us you know they come you know you know they build up to a point so that that person burns themselves they just can't take it anymore and 
I wanted to write about that. And and these women helped me by by coming to me and you know becoming a part of my universe, which I never had before. And um, you know, I, I had never been able to go inside a female character that deeply. And I sat down and you know thought about what it takes in this day and age. And, and I try to portray what it takes in this day and age to actually become a better man, right? A better man. I want I wanted to portray Isa becoming a better human being, despite that enormous baggage around his neck that's saying you can't be that bad because this is where this is your background. And that's why, you know, I meant you know, spending time with the LGBTQ community in Iran, it was it was the same thing. It, 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 you know, it, it wasn't because I wanted to know the subterranean life in Tehran. I already knew that. I already had been in those spaces. But I wanted to know, for instance, how it feels. Because there's a moment in the book, for instance, where Ramin says to Isa, Isa says to him, you know, you don't look well. What's going on? You know, you're sweating. He says, you know, I can't get uh, the proper testosterone, like the ones I'm getting. I don't know where they're coming from. You know, I'm, I'm having, those are the moments I was after, like that nobody knows, like how, how we have, how human beings suffer for the smallest things that should just come, you know, just come easily, but it doesn't because everything in, in certain situations and geographies is just a constant struggle. And that constant struggle is uh, is what, you know, there's a, like, there's a, there's a boiling point, right? And then you, one day you decide, I just cannot take it anymore. I'm going to burn myself or I'm going to. So I, you know, all of these you know, were in my head and, you know, COVID had come and I didn't have much to do. And I wrote this book and a year later, um, the women's uh, life freedom movement happened in Iran. And uh, a lot of the, a lot of the moments that I had portrayed uh, were actually being played out on the streets of Tehran. Like when that girl, in the book goes on the ping pong table and takes her, you know, headdress off and wants to burn it or something. And then those then a year later, those things are happening every day in Tehran. Because I think I would like to believe a writer at, at their best moments can be really in touch with time and geography and the collective the collective, right, with the collective, in the best sense of the term. And, and uh, so this book, writing it and it coming out when it has, uh, it's been very, also very emotionally, <laughs> not challenging, but it's been a roller coaster because you see the things you've thought about, written about, actually playing itself out on the streets of your cities. 
We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? I chose uh, this essay um, by George Orwell, uh, his famous essay called A Hanging, because in a way, I think it shows how my writing life, my readings, my experiences in the world sort of converge as a whole to make me write the books I I write. And by that, I mean the way George Orwell takes a moment that you can, you can as, a, as a writer or a reporter or whatever, you can just describe it, but you can also sit on it, dwell on it, and have perhaps an epiphany. And as a writer, I, it's these epiphanic moments that I'm interested in. And I think Orwell does that brilliantly when he describes this hanging. He was a he was an Indian civil service. Uh, uh, he worked in the Indian civil service when uh, Britain had the empire. And he's describing this uh, is this hanging, this execution of an Indian uh, in Burma, uh, probably for something very small. I don't know what the execution was for. And he says, he describes at each step, his muscles slid neatly into place, the lock of hair on his scalp danced up and down. His feet printed themselves on the wet gravel. And once, in spite of the men who gripped him by each shoulder, he stepped slightly aside to avoid a puddle on the path. It is curious, but till that moment, I had never realized what it means to destroy a healthy, conscious man. When I saw the prisoner step aside to avoid the puddle, I saw the mystery, the unspeakable wrongness of cutting a life short when it is in full tide. This man was not dying. He was alive just as we were alive. All the organs of his body were working, bowels digesting food, skin renewing itself, nails growing, tissues forming, all toiling away in solemn foolery. His nails would be still growing when he stood on the drop when he was falling through the air with the teeth of a second to live. His eyes saw the yellow gravel and the gray walls and his brain still remembered, foresaw, reasoned, reasoned even about puddles. He and we were a party of men walking together, seeing, hearing, feeling, understanding the same world. And in two minutes, with a sudden snap, one of us would be gone, one mind less one world less. Do you want to say anything else about that? Uh, I already sort of said it, but I, I'm really interested in in a writer, Orwell and others, like actually pausing and thinking about what they have just seen and, and how, what a monumental thing that little moment is. And that, I think if, if there's one reason why I'm a writer, it's that to just catch those moments and share them with my reader. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you liked. 
The two pieces, uh, I mean, the, the Orwell piece that I picked uh, seeks into my own piece. Um, and in a way, it is to show uh, how uh, the way I live my life with, as I've said, my boots on the ground in various geographies plays itself, uh, 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 sort of talks back to my readings, such as Orwell, but also um to my to my uh to the books I write, which I will explain after I will read this. So Orwell was uh, describing a hanging. And then a few years ago I um uh, I was uh describing a hanging, a public hanging in Tehran of uh, two people. And it's an essay that's uh, called The Hanging in the House of Artists. Uh, which is a public park in Tehran. The soldiers don't want to be here. They are cold and tired from their drained expressions and the periodic low murmur amongst themselves. You can imagine they think their officers dressed in darker green uniforms are completely absurd for forcing them into this situation. But the cranes have long arrived and so have the masked men who will put the ropes around the victims. The cranes are also masked, their license plates covered, so that no one will get the idea into their heads to take revenge afterwards on the cranes or their operators. This waiting is annoying to the crowd. There is a point after which you want the deed to follow its inevitable course. George Orwell describes something of the same feeling in his famous essay, A Hanging. Oh, kill him quickly, get it over, stop that abominable noise. Orwell also writes in the same essay of a moment when, as the man is being led to the gallows, he steps slightly to avoid a puddle of water. A similar awareness seems to sweep through the crowd when the condemned have finally arrived. And just before the masked hangman slipped the noose around their necks, one of them asks for a drink of water. Whispers flow through the throng. Look, they're giving him water. I'll stop there. The reason I picked this uh, to mesh with the Orwell piece is why I was having trouble with the essay was, like Orwell, I... I, I realized I you know when I was standing there and that moment happened and I saw these two men hung from the cranes. Um, there's an emptiness that happens inside you, right? There, there's an emptiness um, while there's all sorts of drama happening around you. Mothers screaming, weeping. There's many things, but for someone like me, there's just this absolute emptiness and. While I was writing the piece, I already knew that. I already was thinking of Orwell in that piece. It had come to my mind. But I didn't know if I wanted to use it or not. I, I didn't know if it was the right thing to do. And then I decided, of course I have to use it. Because literature is about these uh, these connections, you know, Orwell in early to mid 
early 20th century and Sonar in early 21st century had a very similar moment about in a public execution where one prisoner stepped around the puddle of water because they didn't want to get their feet wet, even though they're going to be dead in a minute. And in Tehran, the prisoner asked for water before they're hung by the neck in a, in a minute or two. And that moment was just so pregnant that, you know, I had to call Orwell's consciousness into mine, you know, and like I had to share that with my readers. And I don't, I don't always do that, but it was a very conscious choice because I thought the moment, that moment of description needs to be connected to the rest of history and what we humans have done to each other. Where do you write? I write, uh, I write usually uh, where I'm sitting right here in my, in my room, uh, in my study, in my apartment in Harlem. And uh, if I'm in Tehran, I, I write uh, in my living room, uh, in my place in Tehran. When I'm traveling, which is quite a bit, I just make do as best as I can. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? There are several things I do, but um, one of the things I do, uh, I'll, I'll explain the simplest one, is I play hacky sack with myself a lot. So I go in the living room and have different hacky sacks, bigger, smaller, and, and I just play hacky sacks. And sometimes I make these little videos of myself and I send them to to special people in my life. <laughs> Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Just about always, I, I show the completed work to my agent, dear agent, Jessica Pepin. How have you dealt with rejection? Rejection is interesting. Um, I probably, I would say, I take refuge in the way that many uh, Persian Persian uh, poets of the past centuries have done is to just walk through the portal of mysticism. But whereas they became mystics, I just read their mystical works and that seems to help. And then I go back to writing. What is your favorite word? Many years ago, I had a dear uh, Chinese friend who hadn't yet been in the country too long. So their, uh, their uh, vocabulary was not uh, very complete. And then one day she said to me, I came across this word. It's, it's really beautiful. I said, what is it? She said, estuary. Isn't that a beautiful word? Estuary. And I thought, my God, that really is a beautiful word. And I was thinking about it the other day. And when you think about what an estuary is and the way, you know, connects the connections between uh, between one big body of water and these branches, it just sort of is it's a, it's a, it's a, another way to describe existence. So it's both a beautiful word and a beautiful 
thought and the fact that this uh, this friend of mine from the past uh, whose English was not that complete said to me estuary what a beautiful word it says a lot about language and how amazing human beings can be Salar, thank you so much for this conversation. I'm so grateful. I'm grateful. Thank you for your wonderful, beautiful program and your excellent questions. If you like today's show with Salar Abdo, author of the novel A Nearby Country Called Love, check out my interview with Christopher Castellani, author of the novel Leading Men. We talked about writing working class characters, interpreting real life characters as fictional ones, and loyalty. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 430 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Buzzy Jackson, David James Duncan, and Antoine Wilson. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.